Would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1? And I want you to see this. When I, um, when I deal with Calvinists, and uh, if you're not familiar with Calvinist teaching, they teach that God has chosen some people for heaven and some people for hell. And uh, it's primarily based on the work of John Calvin, who based his work on that of Augustine. And Augustine's the father of Roman Catholicism. And um, Calvin called his system Reformed Augustinianism. The ESV is the Calvinist translation. And in their teaching, uh, they like to use Ephesians chapter 1. If you look at verse 4, it says, According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, Who's that speaking of? Well, look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. And you'll see all through this chapter, in Him, in Him, in Him, uh, verse 10 that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. So what is repetition in the Bible? It's God's volume control. So all of these characteristics that we would be holy and before him, uh, blameless and love, all these are characteristics of anyone who is in Christ. That's what the Bible says, all right? Verse 11, in whom, in who? Jesus Christ. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. So we were predestinated, verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory. So we were predestinated to be to the praise of his glory. All right. So when you understand the, the, the grammar, that's what's going on. Does everyone understand that? Okay. And then what's the qualifier? Who first trusted in Christ. If you trust in Christ, then it's predestinated because you are in Christ. It's predestinated that all those who are in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. It's predestinated that all of them would stand before Him in love. Whoever is in Christ, these are all characteristics of anyone who is in Christ. That's the clear grammatical understanding of Ephesians chapter 1. And it's, it's really... Um, uh, impossible to argue with because it's those time words are so vitally important to understanding uh, the doctrine. Um, this pastor came to my table, he's an older gentleman, and he, um, he looked at the book that we carry by Lawrence Vance called The Other Side of Calvinism. And he said, is this pro or con? I said, pro or con what? And he said, Calvinism. Oh, he said, oh, it's against. And he said, well, then I wouldn't be interested in it. I'm a sovereign grace preacher. And I said, well, I suppose you wouldn't be interested in it because you wouldn't want to see the error of your teaching. <laughs> and um, he said, you don't believe in grace? I said, oh, I believe in grace. Grace is just, you know, none of us would be saved without grace. I love grace. And uh, so we ended up in a little conversation. We went to Ephesians 1, and he couldn't do anything with it. And what happened was, and it was interesting, 
I actually started, because there were some young preachers there who were watching, I actually lifted my voice so these young guys could see how to deal with somebody like this. And then we ended up with a little bit of a crowd. And as I'm talking with this guy, he just kind of walked away. He just left because they can't answer the word of God on their doctrine. And I said to him, I said, I want these young men to understand something that I'm saying to you. I reject any system that calls for me to explain away the clear teaching of Scripture. If the words don't mean what they say, I reject that system. And he said, I just don't think you understand the words. He said, that's not what that means. I said, well, you tell me what it means. He said, read the English and tell me what it means. Well, it doesn't mean what you're saying. Well, tell me what it does mean. And so this is a very tricky passage for the Calvinist. This is the English Standard Version. So I hope that you'll get that in your Bible. You have not the ESV, but if you'll open your Bible, God's Word, to Ephesians chapter 1. And let's start reading in verse, uh, let's start reading in verse 11 again. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Completely changed the word order. Turned the sentence on its head. And I got to tell you, man, I've got no respect for somebody that, that does that. I just don't. So now, let's go back to your King James Bible, and I want you to see something. Verse 12, again, that we should be to the praise of His glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of His glory. So we're sealed until He comes to get us. Right? And when does He come to get us? At the rapture, praise the Lord, unless you have an ESV. Let me read it to you in the ESV. We'll start reading in verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. It just completely removes the doctrine of the rapture from that text. Go with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. And let's read, start reading in verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now I want you to notice something right there before we go on. Looking for that blessed hope. What's our blessed hope? The return of Christ. And the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that, that construction of the great God, now, God is God. Is that right? It doesn't matter who acknowledges Him. He is God. Is that right? Is He everyone's Savior? No. Whose Savior is He? Those who have trusted in Him. The great God 
and our Savior. Anybody here? Is He your Savior? Anybody here? So He is the great God. And He's our Savior. All right? So, let's look at it again. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Now, we'll start reading in verse 11 again. I'll read it from the... Uh, the, what is this, the ESV. Um, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. No rapture. It's just gone. And the distinction between the God and our Savior is gone. Um, another thing, in this present world has changed to this present age. Now, how many of you understand that there's a difference between world and age? Uh, I'm just, this is so important. Is, as I read from the English Standard Version, was it clearer? Not at all. Not at all. And the problem comes from, um, and, and I'll, uh, hopefully, I've told you I'm going to talk about three weeks' worth of material next Sunday morning. But uh, hopefully I can deal with the excellence of the King James Bible next week. But doctrinally, the, the King James Bible is so precise and so careful. Here in the English Standard Version, there's a, there's a melding of ideas but even worse than that, it was written with a theological perspective. It was written with an agenda. The agenda was not to communicate what was in the text. It was written not to communicate what was in the text, but to defend a position. That's unethical. That is completely unethical. And uh, that's that's the English Standard Version, the ESV. And we could spend we could spend at least a whole service on this, but I think that we've seen enough. Uh, turn with me now to Psalm one. Psalm one. Psalms one. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. That is a very clear and distinct passage of Scripture. And in it, what we're told is that, that the blessed man, the man that God will bless and reward at the judgment, is the man that rejects 
ungodly counsel. Is that clear in the text? And we delight in the law of the Lord and we meditate in it day and night. The result of this meditation in in God's word is a, a, a prosperity that extends to our posterity. This is his leaf also shall not wither. So the idea is that if I meditate in God's word day and night, then my children will prosper. Is that right? Now, as a teacher, and this is, a, this is an illustration that's used all through Scripture, as a teacher, I have children in the faith. So if I, as a teacher, meditate on the Word of God and delight in it, then you, my students, will prosper. Does, does that make sense? That my teaching will bear fruit in your life as the hearer, in as much as you hear it and, and believe it. It will bear fruit in the hearer. And, and that's, that's a clear teaching of Scripture. Isn't that right? The Bible talks about um, uh, these, these false teachers in the book of Romans, and also in Hebrews, and also in First uh, and Second Timothy. And they talk about uh, devouring widows' houses. Jesus said that in Matthew 23. Talks about leading silly women captive. Isn't that interesting? Anybody know any silly women? Just they'll listen to anything and they'll, they're easily persuaded. Don't be silly, you ladies. Don't be silly women. Be rooted and grounded in the truth. Be Ephesians 4. Let's look at it. Let's be Ephesians 4. I almost said let's be Ephesians 4 ladies. Some of the men we'll talk about tonight would probably have agreed with that. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 11, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. You see, we live in a Christianity that is walking in the vanity of their mind, the same way that all the other Gentiles in the world are walking, Christianity is now walking in the same vanity of mind. What is vanity of mind? When we think of vanity of mind, we think of Carly Simon. You're so vain, you probably think this sermon is about you. Okay? That's what we think of vanity. That's not the scriptural use of vanity. The scriptural use of vanity is... is emptiness, nothingness. And so 
Think of this. Empty-mindedness. That's the state of Christianity. But God gave the church pastors and teachers and doctrine. He gave us one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who's above all and in all and through all. That's what the Bible says. That's the same chapter, Ephesians chapter 4. We have that truth so that we can be not empty-minded, but full of the mind of Christ. We have the Word of God to accomplish that. Amen? Men, women, we have the mind of Christ if we meditate on the Word of God. That's our core. It must be our life, and we can't allow anyone to shake our faith in this book. It's our life. We meditate in the law day and night. It's our, it's our Bible. It's God's Word. It's our life. We live there. But that's not where Christianity is. Um, I want to talk to you tonight about the men behind the Revised Version and behind the lexicons and dictionaries. I can only deal with a couple of them tonight. And I want you to understand that what I'm going to do tonight is simply a small sampling. We could honestly do this for probably six or eight weeks, what I'm going to do tonight. When I'm done, you'll be glad I'm only doing it tonight. Okay? Um, You know who I'll start with? Let's start with Gerhard Kittel. Gerhard Kittel. Has anyone here ever seen Kittel's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament? Any Christian bookstore you go into, you'll see it. If you look at CBD, Christian Book Distributors, they always have it right on the front. Kittel's Theological Dictionary. Um, it is, if you look at the, the book, The Writing of the New International Version, you know, this is put out by, the, by the, the New International Version, they cite Kittel's Theological Dictionary of New Testament Words as one of their primary sources. For, uh, for the word choices in the New International Version. And every modern translation would cite this, this work. Um, Kittle wrote, he was the editor of it. He was the chief editor and uh, contributed to many of the definitions. He wrote between 1937 and 1943. Interesting, isn't it? His father was Rudolf Kittle. How many of you have noticed that there's a difference in the Old Testament between the modern Bibles? And uh, your King James Bible. There's a a massive difference. And the difference is that your King James Bible was um, translated from the the Masoretic text. And that's the traditional text that the Jews have used for a thousand years. So, um, but that was changed by a man named Rudolf Kittel. A German, Rudolf Kittel. And he came out with what was called the Biblia Hebraica. Uh, using the Leningrad manuscript. And so that is what underlies the New King James Bible. That would have influenced the New King James Bible and all the other modern translations. That would be uh, Gerhard Kittel's father. Um, I'm going to read to you the entry from Wikipedia. All right? Now, Wikipedia, of course, is no bastion of conservative Christianity. Is that right? And I, I, I have some extended biographies of him in my office, 
Um, but I'll just read a short version, and we'll, let's see if, if we get the sense. Okay, now, don't, I don't want you to lose the context. Don't lose the context. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Okay? That's our context. So, scripturally, let's not do that. Amen? Okay. In May 1933, he became a member of the Nazi party, a a professor of evangelical theology and New Testament at the University of Tübingen. And I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing Tübingen right. I'm not sure how that's pronounced, but it's a famous theological university in Germany. He published scientific studies purporting to portray the Jews as the historical enemy of Germany, Christianity, and European culture. From 1940 to 1943, he actively assisted the mass murder of the Jews in Poland. In 1945, after after Hitler's Germany capitulated to the Allies, Kittel was arrested by the French occupying forces, removed from office, and interred, interned at Balingen. William Foxwell Albright wrote the International War Crimes Tribunal in Nuremberg in early 1946, quote, In view of the terrible viciousness of his attacks on Judaism and the Jews, which continues at least until 1943, Gerhard Kittel must bear the guilt of having contributed more perhaps than any other Christian theologian to the mass murder of Jews by the Nazis. He hated the Jews. He he was asked by... I think it was Himmler, to write in a publication for Himmler. And there were, I think, uh, 10 volumes of this published. Kittle wrote in eight of them, and they were mystical, satanic writings. But he was giving scientific research proving Aryan superiority and Jewish inferiority. And he openly assisted in the annihilation of two-thirds of European Jewish population. How many of you would think that that's the counsel of the ungodly? Who's the guy that does the Monday night football thing? Or did? Hank Williams. He got fired because he said that playing for, for a conservative to play golf with a socialist... It would be like, I think he said, um, Netanyahu playing with Hitler. That was his analogy. And that would make sense because the purpose of socialism is to destroy capitalism. So it's, a, it's actually a thoughtful analogy. He was fired for that. He was fired for that. But in every Christian bookstore... In every Christian book house, in every New International Version Bible, Kittle is cited as an authority to help you understand the Scriptures. It, it, it's almost too hard to believe. Would, would you all agree with that? This is so far beyond the pale, it's hard to comprehend. Oh, just wait. Let's go to um, Henry Liddell. Henry Liddell. 
Henry Liddell was uh, the writer of Liddell Scott um, Greek lexicon. And this is the first of the English, the Greek English lexicons. And what that is, is it's a, it's a tool to help the student define Greek words into English. Now, that's actually already been done. But what they did was they took a man named Passau, his work in German, and basically plagiarized it, translated it into English. And that is the text that those are the definitions that underlie all of the modern lexicons. Every one of them. If you trace it, the majority of the definitions in all of the modern lexicons come from this Liddell Scott. Uh, it was revised by a guy named Jones, so sometimes you'll see this Liddell Scott Jones uh, Greek lexicon. So who was this Liddell? Well, there's no record of his conversion at all. He was trained in a Church of England school, and he became a Church of England priest um, and, one, and the head of uh, Oxford University. Um, he wrote at the end of his life, quote, But I think the true Christian spirit is best evidenced by recognizing what is good in every man and every system. Is that the, cr the true Christian spirit? Come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. Woe to him that calls good evil and evil good. It's Christian spirit. But that's it. So apparently this man was not a Christian. Um, in his biography and in the biographies of his friends, he is listed as close friends with the following people. And again, remember what we're saying. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sitteth in the seat of, scorn, of the scornful. How many, it, it, how many of you do believe that your close friends, your close friends, are a good reflection of you? Would you agree with that? As iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Let's see how his friends uh, sharpened him. One of his good friends was George Eliot, otherwise known as Mary Ann Evans. She rejected all the tenets of Christianity. She believed each man is actually God becoming a man. And she attended seances with her live-in boyfriend and Charles Darwin. She was a libertine. She, the reason that she had to write under a man's name was because no woman could write the things that she was writing. But this is a good friend of the man who's telling you how to understand your Bible. Now, now, can you imagine letting this man stand here and preach? Would we do that? No. We would if I brought my lexicon and changed the words of the Bible to teach you. It would be the same thing as him, as he standing here preaching. Or as him standing here preaching. All right, so... Uh, then another friend, A.P. Stanley, A.P. Stanley, Dean Stanley. Stanley was uh, uh, one of the uh, translators on the revised committee, uh, the revised version committee. He was the rector at Westminster Abbey. And Westminster Abbey only allowed liberal uh, priests there, Anglican priests. Um, listen to what Dean John Bergen, Bergen wrote, Bergen uh, couldn't stand the revised version. He was the dean of the, the Cardinal College at Oxford. 
He had the largest collection of, of manuscripts in the world. Uh, just a brilliant, brilliant man. He wrote a famous book called The Revision Revised. He wrote another book on um, the, the traditional text, Vindicated. He wrote another book on the last 12 verses of Mark. He would have also been an Anglican, um, but he would have been a conservative. Uh, I don't know if he was an evangelical, but he would have been a conservative uh, Anglican. So listen to what Bergen wrote of Stanley. Now, here's what happened. Liddell was going to have his friend Stanley come and preach to the ministerial students at Oxford. So Bergen wrote him a letter. And we have this in, the, in a book called The Correspondence of, of uh, Dean John Bergen. Listen to what he wrote. I cannot think to advocate... I, I cannot think the advocate of the Westminster Abbey sacrilegious communion, the patron of Mr. Vance Smith, the Unitarian teacher the partisan of Mr. Voisey, the infidel, the avowed champion of a negative and cloudy Christianity which is really preparing the way for the rejection of all revealed truth, a fit person to be selected to address, uh, to address the young of this place from the university pulpit. That's the way that Stanley was described by Bergen. This is the close and intimate friend of Liddell. This is the man that Liddell chose as the godfather for his son. All right. Um, Stanley opposed the use of the Christian creed in the church because of its strong Trinitarian sentiments. That is saying that, that the Godhead is a trinity. Stanley visited Annie Besant, who would become the editor of Lucifer magazine. She had written a leaflet denouncing the deity of Christ. During one of his visits to her home, he said, quote, that conduct was far more important than theory, and that he regarded all as Christians who recognized and tried to follow the moral law. On the questions of absolute deity of Christ, he laid but little stress. That's one of the translators of the revised version. The deity of Christ wasn't important to him. The fact that she was a, a, a Luciferian, she belonged to the philosophical society with Madame Blavatsky. Uh, it's a satanic organization, spiritism and all of that. But this, but this was endemic in the, the revised committee. So many of the people in England at this time uh, were infected by this type of satanism. Um, how many of you, that, that almost sounds over the top. It is. And like, I, like I've said about our president, they're so far gone that when you describe them, you sound crazy. Okay, so I'll just quote him. Um, oh, let's do this. Let's move on to another one. But how many of you have learned enough about Stanley? Okay, let's move on to John Ruskin. John Ruskin, famed art critic um, and infidel. And he was a student of Liddell and became a lifetime friend. A lifetime friend of, of Liddell's. Um, he was given, granted a professorship at Oxford by Liddell. And listen to what he said. He hated the scriptures as they're translated. How wholesome it would be, quote, how wholesome it would be for many simple persons if such places, for instance, as Acts 19.19, we retained the Greek expression instead of translating it. And they had read, quote, many of them also which used curious arts brought their Bibles together and burnt them all before uh, and burnt them before all men. Uh, so what he was doing was advocating the burning of Bibles. He, he thought that the superstitious books were fine, but we needed to burn the Bibles. 
he became an infidel. He, he used to be at least a nominal Christian, but he became an enemy of Christianity. Do you know why? Because of the definitions in the Liddell Scott English lexicon, Greek lexicon. That's what he said. That was his statement. The thing that helped change his position was the undermining of the authority of the Word of God by the definitions in that lexicon. Now, where did the definitions in that lexicon come? And I'll read you some more about Ruskin here in a minute. Again, best friend of Liddell. Um, What was behind this lexicon were the writings uh, in classical literature, uh, the writings of Plato and, and that type of thing, the Greek tragedies and and honestly, paganism. And so what he would do would be to take something from pagan literature and redefine the words in the Bible by the pagan meaning of those words because he loved the that classical language. He hated theology and he hated studying it and reading it. Um, listen to something else that Ruskin said. Sermons have been preached by illiterate clergymen on he that believeth not shall be damned. He that believeth not shall be damned. And he hated that word damned in the Bible. He didn't think it belonged. And of course, that came because of Liddell Scott uh, dictionary or lexicon that said he that who would have changed it from damned to condemned. And of course, when someone hits their thumb with the hammer, they say condemn it. Because that is the language of the common man and more easily understood. And of course, all the modern Bibles follow the Liddell Scott lexicon and translate damned as condemned. And so Ruskin picked up on that. He said this, and these are all from his class notes. uh, Converted children who teach their parents... what, What he was doing was he hated child evangelism and he hated prison ministry. So this is... Converted children who teach their parents, your converted convicts who teach honest men, your converted dunces who have lived in cretinous stupefaction half of their lives, suddenly awakening to the fact that, uh, to the fact of their being a god, fancy themselves therefore his peculiar people and messengers. Now, where does it say that we're his peculiar people? We read it, Titus two thirteen, right? He hates that word peculiar. And that's removed from all of the modern Bibles based on Liddell Scott lexicon, Greek lexicon. He says this, um, So they fancy themselves, therefore, his peculiar people and messengers, and think themselves exclusively in the right and others wrong, and preeminently in every sect those who hold that men can be saved by thinking rightly instead of doing rightly, by word instead of act, and wish instead of work. They are blown bagpipes for the fiends to pipe with. Um, So what he's saying is the translation of the Bible that says it's by faith and not of works, that needs to be removed. It needs to be removed. He hated the word grace. He never wanted that word um, uh, translated as grace. He wanted it to be charity. He liked charity better than grace. And many of the, the lexicographers of today don't like the word grace. They say that it's an old churchy word. We need to get rid of it. But do you know what the root of charity is? Charis, that's the word grace in the Greek. 
they just hate these theological terms because the only way that a person can be saved is by receiving that free gift, that grace of, of, of Jesus Christ. And they're, in, of course, now all these guys are burning in hell, and they know better now. Um, C.J. Vaughn. C.J. Vaughn was headmaster at Harrow Boys School from 1845 until 1859. Um, he hired a young man named B.F. Brook Foss Westcott. And you might recognize that name because he is one of the authors of the Westcott Hort critical text. So Westcott worked at the school as the headmaster of, a, of one of the, the manors there. And he was there, Westcott was there from 1852 to 1861. Now Vaughn was there until 1859. There was a scandal, it was in the newspapers, of the, um, the brutality of the beatings that Vaughn would give. He would cane the young men. And he would cane them by having them disrobe and, and beat them until they were bloody. And he would watch as other students did that. He would have other students do that, all right? Um, he ended up having to leave the school because of a relationship that he had with one of the boys. And, of course, anyone who knew anything about... You, you, can, you can go online and study any history of Haro, and you'll see pictures of the boys in drag with their... younger boys in drag with their older boys. That was the climate that Vaughn brought to that. That debauched climate was brought to it. Um, I can't, obviously, I can't go any farther. Okay? But as bad as it could be, that's what was going on there. You can't help but think about uh, the Penn State situation. Right? And the Penn State situation, it, it was one man. This was the school. This was teaching the older boys to take advantage of the younger. And every young man that came in was assaulted. It was a horrible place. And Westcott taught there for nine years, in charge of it, for nine years as Vaughn's assistant. When Vaughn was fired and publicly humiliated for um, his role in it, he ended up being a rector again. And 10 years later, Westcott asked him to participate with him in the revised committee, the revision committee of the revised version of the Bible. I asked you this morning, how many of you believe that Paterno should have been fired for his role in that? Yeah. What kind of man do you think B.F. Westcott was? to bring that man in to revise your Bible, God's holy word. And, and remember, I'm only... Do you see why I, I'm saying that we're only going to do it tonight? This is the nature of this group of men that were brought together. How many of you would agree so far that this is the counsel of the ungodly? Is that right? You talk about unclean hands on God's Word. That's what we have. That's what we have. And remember what we're told. These, were, these men were much more qualified to handle the Word of God than the King James translators were. Well, apparently they have a different standard of qualification than I would. 
they'd almost be more like the qualifications for the Democratic Party. Um, now, let me do a couple of things here. This is Thayer's Greek-English lexicon, and uh, this was based on the Liddell Scott, but Thayer was a Unitarian, um, and this is the Baker edition. Some of you may have remembered me referring to this, but I want to read it to you. This is the introduction, publisher's introduction to Baker's edition of this. And this was written in 1901. This particular edition was published in 1991. So he wrote this in 1901. This is published 1991. A word of caution, and remember, Baker is supposed to be a conservative theological outfit. A word of caution is necessary. Thayer was a Unitarian. So he didn't believe in the Trinity, all, so many different other errors. Thayer was a Unitarian, and the errors of this sect occasionally come through in the explanatory notes. The reader should be alert for both subtle and blatant denials of such doctrines as the Trinity. Thayer regarded Christ as a mere man and the Holy Spirit as an impersonal force emanating from God. Now, think about that. He denied the Trinity, and Jesus Christ was just a man. So there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Do you think there would be for that being in the Bible or against it? How about our Savior being called the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you think He would rather Him just be called Jesus? This, this is the influence that these men had on the translating committees. Okay? Um, so He... Readers should be alert for both subtle and blatant denials of such doctrines as the Trinity the inerrant and total depravity of fallen human nature. He didn't believe in the depravity of fallen human nature. The eternal punishment of the wicked and biblical inerrancy. He just... So here's a guy that doesn't believe in the inerrant scriptures. He doesn't believe in the Trinity. He doesn't believe in the deity of Christ. He doesn't believe that man needs to be saved. Hey, Tristan. Let me give that to you. This will help you understand your Bible. I got this in Bible college. Um, I, I've said it all through this series and other things that we deal with. However bad you think it is, it's worse. It's worse. How many of you have seen this? Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words. F.F. F. Bruce writes the introduction to this edition, 1952, and the great textual scholar F.F. F. Bruce, who, of course, was lost. Um, now, can I, can I just ask you, just from a common sense standpoint, these people are considered by evangelicals great scholars. How can a lost person understand the Bible? Doesn't it say that they're spiritually discerned, that, that, that the natural man cannot, uh, what does it say, receive the things of the Spirit? They can't do it. And yet these are the people. If you go, to, go over to Cedarville, look at the library and see what they use. Go to um, Dallas Theological Seminary, Detroit Seminary. Um, now, the Bible colleges that we would support wouldn't have those things in. And you need to understand this. And it's hard, but this is the reality of it. 
Um, Bruce talks about the wonderful work by Kittle that was then in production when he wrote his introduction. Um, the, the book that's primarily used for the definitions in Vines, you know what they claim, the primary definitions? And so you go to any Christian bookstore and you'll find a Vines uh, Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words that gets its, word, its definitions from a lost man that endorses a Nazi. How many of you think that's really weird? Um, how many of you would allow any of those people to stand in this pulpit and preach? Let's make sure they're not in our homes influencing the Word of God. Let's make sure that, that when someone takes a Bible class in college, um, and let me say this, I'm not, a, I'm not against someone attending Cedarville or one of these colleges near us. I'm not, I'm not against that. But I sure wouldn't want them to go to there to learn how to be a preacher. Amen? Um, when you understand what's going on in these schools, it's horrible. Now, if you think Ohio State is better, <laughs> I got some land to sell you. Um, this is the world that we live in, folks. This is the world that we live in. That's why we try to get behind good Bible preaching schools that are under the authority of a New Testament church. Uh, where the Word of God is upheld and people's confidence in the Word of God is um, secured, is encouraged, is uh, developed as opposed to undermined. Um, we could spend a lot more time on this subject, but how many of you have... The, the sampling is enough for you to get the understanding of how bad it is. Um, now, let me say this. Let's say that uh, you're listening to David Jeremiah. And David Jeremiah quotes something from a lexicon. And he tells you where it's coming from. Or he quotes vines. Um, does that mean that David Jeremiah is an infidel? No. No, I personally think David Jeremiah is probably a very good man. I don't listen to him a lot, but what I have heard has been very good. I do know that he changed... Scott Memorial Baptist Church to Shadow Mountain Church, um, removing Baptist from the name. But, um, but I think that theologically he's sound. Would you all agree with that, those of you who have listened to him? So if he says something like that, if he cites one of these terms or whatever, here's the problem. I guarantee you he doesn't have any idea what these guys believed. You know why? They're not taught. So unless you go to... Uh, different, a different kind of source to find it, they'll never know it. Um, when I speak with, uh, with leaders in other groups, they've never heard anything like this. They don't know anything about it. Satan's done a pretty good job, hasn't he? You know that he's the deceiver? He's the liar. And his first words were, hath God said? So where did we start this? Let's go back. Let's go back to Psalm the, the first psalm.
Oh, I, I forgot to tell you that John Ruskin was also a pedophile. Um, Lewis Carroll, who wrote um, Alice in Wonderland. Alice was Liddell's daughter. And Lewis Carroll was in love with her as a child. And he, um, Liddell was the uh, model for Humpty Dumpty. This is a sordid bunch. This is a sordid bunch. Um, a study of literature in the late 19th century and 20th century is a story of debauchery. It's a story of wickedness. Um, be careful what your children are to read in the, in the schools. Be careful. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. You know what happened to Ruskin? Ruskin is the fruit, the leaf of Liddell. You see? Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Ruskin died insane. Liddell died insane. Um, I heard someone say one time, if you mess with God's Word, God will mess with your mind. And uh, it, it's, it's really an unbelievably sad, a sad story. I, I hope that you sense for me there's nothing to gloat about here. We could all cry. How many, honestly, you feel like crying? It's, it's so disturbing. It's so unsettling. Someone said to me this morning, who do we trust? Who can we trust? If they agree with this, trust them. If they change it, don't trust them. Let God be true and every man a liar. Um, I intentionally only did a, a, a selection of this tonight. And uh, it's enough. But we need to understand that God, His glory is in His righteous Word. He's magnified it above His very name. We need to make sure that we keep unclean hands off of it. Amen? And we need to be thankful for the godly men who have influenced us. We need to be thankful for the men who have stood for the Word of God. We need to be thankful for those who have proclaimed the truth of the gospel and who have stood in the face of this horrible infidelity. Um, but we need to stand. We need to stand for it. Thank you, Lord, for your word.